Hello, and welcome to Tiny Insect, episode 1.8, Less Money, More Problems. Over the last two episodes, we were introduced to Hong Shiquan, his home of Lingnan, and its most important city, Guangzhou. Hong's failure in his third attempt to pass the provincial level exam in 1836 led him to meet his heavenly family and to an extended period of house arrest. In the following months, as he recovered, Hong resumed his village teaching duties and prepared to take the exam for a fourth time. Beyond wanting to take the exam again, we don't know what Hong was planning or dreaming for his future in 1837 or 1838. But whatever his plans were, they were almost surely interrupted by the conflict and social upheaval which engulfed Guangzhou and its environs beginning in 1839. The fallout of this conflict which has come to be known to history as the Opium War, helped destabilize Lingnan into the 1840s and created fertile ground for the Taiping Heavenly Kingdom to take root and grow. The name Opium War was first given to the war by a British newspaper that was opposed to the conflict. It was a derogatory label that implied that the great British Empire, emancipator of slaves, was being lowered to doing the bidding a bunch of British drug dealers selling opium that was mostly grown in British-controlled regions of India by a giant private corporation. It's not a bad name, Opium War, and I'll use it to describe the conflict. The seizure of British opium by Lin Zishu, a zealous Qing magistrate tasked by the Daoguang Emperor to eradicate the opium trade, was the nominal trigger of the war. But we could just as easily call it The Silver Crunch War of 1839. Yep, silver's back, baby. A shortage of silver and its subsequent rise in price relative to copper will be a key driver in widespread unrest during the 1830s and especially the 1840s. Silver supply and trade balances drove Great Britain's first sustained conflict with the Qing Empire. The war with Britain was sparked by the Qing Empire's effort to stem the flow of silver out of their territory. There was a strong strain of moralizing against opium among Qing elite, to be sure. But, just as many, or probably more, of Daoguang's advisors favored taking the opposite approach, legalization of opium, to solve their monetary problems. The opium was a symptom of the silver problem, not the other way around. The opium war has taken a very prominent place in modern Chinese histories, a place that wouldn't have been at all clear to those who fought it. The war is a popular starting point, for example, in histories of quote-unquote modern China. The Opium War is the opening conflict in a century of shame, defeats, and unequal treaties between China and predatory colonialist powers, the European countries, the United States, and Japan. At least, that's the common narrative. The Qing Chinese who fought the war would barely have recognized such a description, or believed it possible that this loss was some great break with the past. The Qing commanders and civil administrators directing the war did not conceive of their conflict with the foreign drug dealers as a clash of civilizations as it has become in many modern imaginations. If you want to dive deeper into the conflict, and in particular how it has been remembered, 
you can't do better than Julia Lavelle's excellent The Opium War, Drugs, Dreams, and the Making of Modern China. It's one of the few histories that has made me laugh over and over. It's especially recommended if you appreciate dry humor. In addition to being a great writer, Lavelle is able to make her book quite funny because the Opium War was, on so many levels, just a ridiculous conflict. What did Britain think it was doing, sending a handful of ships and a couple thousand marines to make war on the largest empire on Earth? The population of the UK was less than 10% of China's at the time. On the other side of the conflict, most Qing officials treated the British as just another band of roving pirates or barbarians, who just hadn't realized that their betters had had enough of their misbehavior. The bonds holding Chinese society together under Qing rule were under a great deal of strain in the early 1800s. Over the previous century and a half, the population of the empire had doubled, and then nearly doubled again. In the 1830s, Qing China had a population somewhere between 400 and 450 million people. That's quite a bit larger than the United States today at around 330 million. 400 million people is about the population of Europe on the eve of war in 1939. Rebellions like the White Lotus, which we talked about a few episodes back, rose up in reaction to the strains that this population growth put on Chinese society. Through this period of long growth, the empire experienced a steady rate of price inflation as the demand for land and goods increased. Silver also flooded in, mostly from the Americas. And the Chinese always had plenty of access to copper to mint coins for daily transactions. The money supply in copper and silver grew along with the expanding population and the corresponding rise in economic activity. Demand for more silver was especially acute after 1700, as the empire recovered from a half-century of war, disease, and famine. Beginning around the year 1700, the value of silver in China again exceeded its value in the rest of the world. From about 700 to 750, an ounce of gold bought 10 ounces of silver in China. In Europe, the same ounce of gold bought 15 ounces of silver. This wasn't quite as extreme a difference as existed in the silver century that we discussed um, that ran from 1550 to 1640, but it was still enough to help suck in silver from the rest of the world. Where did all the silver come from? Well, mostly from Spain's American colonies, particularly Mexico. The silver mining industry in Mexico was absolutely booming during the 18th century, and huge portions of it went to China, both directly across the Pacific and indirectly. Production in Spanish Peru, which had helped so much to satisfy China's hunger for silver in the late 16th and early 17th centuries, was higher than ever. But Mexico's production was now dominant, more than twice Peru's for most of the 1700s. In return, products such as tea and silk were shipped to Europe, the Americas, and other destinations. Even after the global price of silver stabilized around 1750. Worldwide demand for goods produced in Qing China remained high. And, in return, the Chinese didn't really want much more than silver. Maybe a few beaver pelts, some silver, some more silver, some cotton sometimes, and then more silver. Mexican silver arrived in China during the 18th century in the form of coins, Spanish silver dollars. 
This was a change from the early boom of Potosi, where most silver was exported as bullion. Silver dollars, especially after 1775 or so, were preferred by Qing merchants because they offered a standardized medium of exchange. And since I've been talking about tile of silver in the last few episodes, and that's what most of my sources peg the value at, I'm going to stick with the tile. Just know that when I talk about tile of silver, it was often in the form of Spanish silver dollars. Like their Ming predecessors, the Qing promoted a bimetallic monetary system. Silver was used for paying taxes to the imperial government and for large transactions, long-distance trade, or trade over rugged terrain where moving the heavy strings of copper coins even just a few miles was a complete pain in the ass. The Manchu bannermen, a foundation of Qing power, received silver as part of their salary. Copper alloy coins, minted in sort of a flat donut shape, were typically used for the day-to-day transactions and lower value transactions. They were often strung together through the center of the coin into big jangly necklaces of about a thousand coins each. Critically, the prices of locally produced grain and other agricultural products, which provided everyday peasants with the bulk of their income, were denominated in copper. The flood of silver into the empire that persisted through the 18th century helped keep prices reasonable for everyday folks. The Qing state also did a good job minting enough copper coins to maintain a very steady exchange rate with silver. Consider the totally fictional peasant farmer Ma Rong. In his first year of farming, say in 1770, Ma Rong's harvest was worth a hundred strings of a thousand coppers, which he could trade for a hundred silver tayal at his local money changer. A decade later, in 1780, Ma had an identical harvest that was also worth 100 strings of copper, but that was now worth 110 tile of silver. The price of Ma grain, denominated in copper, had stayed the same, but denominated in silver, it increased. Or, in the language of modern economics, it had experienced silver-denominated inflation. This trend of very mild silver-denominated inflation persisted throughout the 1700s. This is where the Kangxi Emperor's tax policy that we discussed a few episodes back really becomes important. In the early 1700s, near the end of his reign, the Kangxi Emperor fixed land taxes at a specific rate, denominated in silver. So, as the value of silver declined relative to copper, it lessened the effective land tax burden for the population. If Ma Rong owed 20 tael of silver in land taxes at the beginning of the 1770s, that would have left him with 80 tael at the end of his first season. But a decade later, he'd end up with 90 tael of silver after taxes. This, as you might imagine, put quite a strain on the Qing treasury. The government's land tax revenue was fixed in silver, but the value of that silver relative to everything else, like the grain modrong grew, was falling. The stipends paid to the old Manchu banner soldiers and their descendants, who were hereditary soldiers, were also fixed in silver. When those soldiers went to the market to buy modrong's grain, they paid a larger percentage of their salary every year for the same product. This led to falling morale among the bannermen, 
and many of them had to take side jobs just to make ends meet, something they weren't supposed to do because, as I said, the military occupations were hereditary. They weren't supposed to have other occupations. They were soldiers. This was one of the dynamics fueling the growth of corruption throughout the entire Qing state as the 19th century dawned. These challenges posed by steady inflation were bad, but they were small potatoes compared with the problems that would arise when the supply of new silver slowed and then reversed. More money might mean more problems, but less money is much, much worse. Beginning around 1800, Mexican silver production began to decline year after year. There was only so much silver left in the ground that could be mined economically with the technology of the day. Layoffs at the mines, which were typically the only major source of employment where they were located, led to unemployment and hunger. In 1804, the Spanish crown passed an act of consolidation, which, for reasons I don't want to get into, reduced the amount of investment in Mexico and triggered a major recession there as well as further decline in silver production. Then, in 1808, Napoleon's armies invaded and occupied Spain. This event set off a series of revolutions of independence throughout Spain's American possessions, including in Mexico, Central, and South America. As an aside, if you want to learn more about these wars, definitely go listen to Seasons 5 and 9 of Mike Duncan's Revolutions podcast when you're done here. Long story short, the decade-long wars of independence were not good for silver production, and afterwards it took a long, long time for the mines to begin operating anywhere close to normal, or the old normal. In 1790, Mexico was producing 80% of the world's silver and gold, while Chile and Argentina and Bolivia produced most of the rest. By the 1820s, production had fallen so much that worldwide silver production had declined by more than half, and it did not recover to the 1790 production levels until 1860. Remember that, 1860, that's going to be important later. Less silver production meant less silver and rising silver prices. With worldwide silver production down by half and more, the United States passed a law that would further reduce the amount of silver available to China. About one-third of all Mexican silver produced traveled directly to China across the Pacific. And, after 1790, most was carried by American shippers. This worked well out for the American traders because, thanks to the Coinage Act of 1792, silver had become the de facto currency of the young United States. But, in 1834, President Jackson signed the Coinage Act of 1834, which set the price of silver at a higher level relative to gold than what it was fetching on the open market. As a consequence, Americans began buying up whatever silver they could find, including whatever silver was still being mined in Mexico, and shipped it directly to Europe, where they were able to trade it for gold and make a guaranteed profit. America had moved from de facto silver standard to a de facto gold standard. Why exactly did China need more silver anyways? Why didn't they just have enough? Well, it's a complicated topic, but generally, as China's population and economy grew, it required more silver for the money supply to keep pace with the economic growth. 
It's fairly well known in popular culture that more money can cause inflation to accelerate. Weimar Germany, printing money leads to hyperinflation, wheelbarrows full of paper currency, and all that. Well, if your money supply dwindles, you get the opposite problem, deflation. Deflation is what drives things like the Great Depression, and it's really, really bad for an economy. As economies grow, all else being equal, they need more money to prevent deflation. In the run-up to and aftermath of the Opium War, the global balance of trade was shifting. The Qing Empire became a net silver exporter, not importer, as it had been for centuries. So, in the first decades of the 1800s, there was less silver that was flowing into the global economy, and the price of silver generally went up everywhere, especially in China. This was a disaster for China's peasants. Throughout the 1700s, the exchange rate of copper to silver had remained at around 1,000 copper coins to one tile of silver. By 1820, when the Daoguang Emperor took the throne, it had risen to about 1,200 coppers to one tile of silver. By this point, Qing officials had noticed and were starting to worry about what the consequences would be and how they could prevent the price from going up from there. By 1830, however, the exchange rate had gone up to about 1,365 coppers to one tael. And by the end of the decade, it reached 1,600 to one. Does this sound familiar? Well, that's because it's the same kind of dynamic that we saw almost 200 years earlier at the end of the Ming Dynasty. Silver became more scarce, so its value increased which decreased the relative value of everything else in a system that was de facto silver standard. Let's go back to our friend Ma Rong. Well, Ma Rong's dead now, but his son, also named Ma Rong, took over the farm and is still growing and selling grain. His harvest sold for 200 silver in 1800. But a few decades later, the same amount of grain is only selling for 120 silver, because the silver is so much more expensive now. Taxes are still denominated in silver, so they don't go down, as are his rents, which had increased along with the price of land since his father's lifetime. In 1800, Marong paid a combined 60 silver tael in taxes and rent, leaving him with a gross profit of 140. But, as he was preparing to hand off the farm to his son, also named Marong, his gross profits had fallen to just 60 silver tile, not nearly enough to feed his family and pay his other expenses. This was all disastrous for the Qing Empire's 400 million citizens. Unemployment rates increased. Tax avoidance and tax strikes became pretty common, even in richer areas. Falling revenues and economic disruption, on top of all of the ongoing corruption, were disastrous for public works as well. Flood control projects suffered from inattention, shoddy construction, and neglected maintenance. Flooding became more common. Poor weather and several bad seasons made everything worse and led to a famine in some regions during the early 1830s. The Qing bureaucracy had trouble dealing with this many crises at a time, which led to unrest and the need for violent suppression of peasant uprisings and bandits, which put an even greater strain on the finances of the state. It was a vicious cycle. All of this was made worse 
by the equivalent of what we now call financial panic, hoarding. Wealthy families that had large quantities of silver stopped trading it for fear of losing out when it, it increased in value. This further decreased the supply of silver on the market, which helped increase its price and then thus promoted more hoarding, and on the cycle went. In response to the economic crisis, the Daoguang Emperor and his leading scholar administrators considered what action to take. They started taking a hard look at one of the most visible sources of their silver supply problems, opium imports. The Qing government was very aware that the price of silver was rising, and why this was such a disaster for their economy, people, and the power of the Qing state itself. Qing believed that the price of silver was increasing because all of their silver was being used to import British opium. Looking through a lens that was only focused on the Qing Empire itself, it's not hard to see how they came to this conclusion. In the decade between 1800 and 1810, a total of $26 million of silver flowed into China. It had been like this for decades, as long as anyone could remember, silver flowing into China from abroad. But that flow slowed and reversed rapidly in the first few decades of the 19th century. In the eight years between 1828 and 1836, $38 million in silver traveled out of China, which may have been as much as 19% of China's silver supply, though I think that might be an overestimation. During the same period, opium imports surged. In 1805, China imported about 3,200 chests of opium a year. By 1839, opium imports hit an annual high of 40,200 chests in a single year, more than a tenfold increase. But pull the lens away and take in the situation across the world with the benefit of historical context, and the picture becomes more complicated. By 1860, the flow of silver reversed again, and China resumed its historic role as a net silver importer. But that reversal took place in an environment of even more opium imports. Instead, it seems to have been driven by an increase in global silver production that finally recovered to pre-collapse levels. With this context, the global silver shortage in the first half of the 1800s grows in importance and becomes a more robust explanation of China's silver problems than opium in and of itself. British and American traders increasingly relied on opium as a trade good, in large part because silver was getting so hard to come by and it was more expensive to purchase, as well as the fact that Indian opium was grown and processed in greater and greater quantities during that time, thanks to the British control over hundreds of thousands of acres of poppy farms and opium manufacturing capacity in India. So at the same time silver was rising in price, opium was going down in price. But the choice of opium as a primary export to China, and it was a choice made and promoted by the East India Company, was not neutral. It was made in spite of the fact that the Qing had outlawed its importation. British and American traders simply preferred the illegal option that came with more profits to whatever other alternatives they had to buy tea without access to cheap silver. 
Even if opium didn't drive the war all by itself, it is called the Opium War for a reason, and the issue of opium in China would only become more contentious through the rest of the 19th century and well into the 20th. It will also be an important issue for Hong Shiquan himself, who is a rabid opponent of opium smoking. In his Taiping Kingdom, opium smoking carried the death penalty. Next episode, we'll talk about opium, its history and role in Chinese society, and what the Daoguang Emperor and his ministers decided to do about it. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a 5-star rating and review. Ratings and reviews will help other listeners find the show. If you have any feedback for the show, comments, or questions, you can find me on Twitter. I am at TinyInsectPod. 